I was seriously thinking about buying a regular thing and just so I can put it with with the um B and M there you should. They're they're not that expensive, I don't think now, because there's many different versions. Yeah, if if you want the the rarer variants. If you want the face of evil one, they're about forty quid. I have all of them, but I bought them when they weren't expensive and rare. Yeah. I would not spend forty pound on a single Leela, sadly. Would you spend forty pound on a married Leela? <laughs> I would have spent forty pounds on that Romana custom. Good on Tish. I'm so glad you made the joke, Finn, because then I didn't have to be the one doing it. <laughs> because I wanted to say it. And I was like, I can't I can't subject the others to this. Well, well know, that's a good says. transition. <laughs> married Leela's into episode one. <laughs> The thing we're actually here to talk about. I just remembered we were recording all that. <laughs> Mana is the president, and Narvin's loud in his descent, and Leela has wise things to say, and they all live on Gallifrey. Braxy is a garbage man, Castellan Winter needs a hand, and Ace is in the CIA, and they who are very bad at staying on task. I'm Finn, my pronouns are they, them. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FinTip. And you can follow the show at Pod of Rassilon on Tumblr, Twitter, Insta, and wherever else you find podcasts for your ear thingies. Joining me today, we have Chris, who uses he, him. Hello. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MedlockMadness and um, on Tumblr at MedlockMadness and Insta as well. Jane chooses she, her. Hey there, you can follow me on Twitter or Tumblr at Jane Tureen. That's J-A-N-E-T-U-R-E-N-N-E. Scar uses they, them. Hi. I don't know if I want to link my Twitter. That's fine. Um, if I, if I decide I do, I believe it is Scarlet underscore Ward. And we have The Void who uses they, them. Hi. Um... You can find me on Twitter at VoidlyThoughts, that is V-O-I-D-L-Y, and then Thoughts, one word. And should we uh, should we talk about some, some Gallifrey, you guys? Finally. Let's do that. I have been dying <laughs> to talk about Gallifrey for a long time. It's probably been about 12 hours. So, last time we spoke, we hadn't listened to Gallifrey. Well, we hadn't re-listened to Gallifrey yet. Um for like the millionth time for some of us and for the first or second time for some of us. For me, I have listened to this show so many times that I don't know how many times I've re-listened to it. But every time I re-listen to it, I remember just how much I love it. And I did come away again from the first episode all the way through grinning like a complete fool because it is just such a brilliant thing. And that's what we're here to talk about. Did anybody have any like initial thoughts about it? Uh, Gallifrey good. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all agree on that point. Yeah. 
So I have a thing that I noticed for the first time on this listen, which, so the, I've listened to it many, many times in the last decade, especially to the first few seasons, and yet there's still things to notice. So in the very first scene, the Nekistani who meets Torvald, in quotes, which we should probably talk about spoilers, and how many or few of them in what count. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the Nekistani who meets Torvald refers to him as Cardinal at first, and Andred con- corrects that to Commander, which is not a CIA title. It's his Chancellery Guard title, and we don't notice until later. Yeah. And goddammit, Gary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it gets cleverer because later there's a... The Outlander who's speaking to Leela refers to Brax as commander and he corrects it to cardinal. There's an exact parallel of those swapped titles, which I really loved and enjoyed and also makes me question what both of them are wearing on those occasions that make people refer to them that way. I thought I wasn't allowed to be talking about Gallifrey in costumes. So Brax in the Wastelands sort of in his wasteland venturing you know, this is my wasteland venturing <laughs> outfit is uh is is quite a beautiful thought yeah <laughs> for the record before we go any further torvald all of them are a dick right just in case we weren't clear on that especially in this first yes. scene it really drives it home the whole gallifrey oh, and yeah. exceptionalism thing is so yes very loud in that in that beginning scene it's it's all kind of like oh, well, he's like, you know, inferior races can't figure out how to do time travel properly. What are we even doing here? Why do I have to associate with these non-Gallifreyans, even them? I think it also, that first scene, it also does really well to establish how the rest of the universe feels about Gallifrey. Um, It's not just Torvald's prejudice we're seeing here. We are seeing Time Lord prejudice, um... Because the way that that all these other people are talking to him, it's not just him. Like they are making fun of Gallifrey and are slightly annoyed with him just for being from Gallifrey. But equally, Gallifreyans being racist about their aliens. What a surprise! How low can we go? Uh, and the thing that um, the thing that really comes over is really rammed home um, throughout this first episode is. Is is that our preconceptions about the Time Lords and Gallifrey? You know that you know we've gathered from various med- media are broken down. So Gallifrey is very much portrayed as a society in decline. It's it's a civilization that's seen as being past its best. So you know you can read all sorts of stuff into that. You know there's a big parallel with the British Empire there as well. So yeah, so it's a real shock that oh, suddenly we have three other temporal powers that what what do you mean? Is uh, you know, are the Time Lords not the temporal power? Well, no they're not, not anymore. And it came before New Who as well, so Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before the last great time war. Um so yeah, that that's the thing that really comes across very strongly throughout the whole the whole thing, and you know, and over the next few episodes as well. Yeah. Um, that that Gallifrey is very much clinging to its its position 
is trying desperately to hold on to its position as a top dog. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that in this first season, you know, as we'll see with the next episode. But that's next episode. One thing they did pick up on as well was the whole we do not squabble amongst ourselves thing. I was like, excuse me, guys. <laughs> I think that's kind of exactly the opposite of what you're all doing. Um, and it's very much the kind of like, it's a piss take of politics and like political states and things like that. You know, ev- everything's like unbendingly polite in the rudest way possible and being overly formal with each other in some ways, like the, the heads of state and stuff but also managing to just be, like, incredibly insulting about everything all the time. And um, that and uh, what Chris said about, like, Gallifrey and exceptionalism, it makes sense as a as a choice for where to go with Gallifrey, because, you know, Gallifrey from the, the classic series was always kind of, you know... Sinister. They, they, they were drawing from British politics and that kind of culture and... Um, it does feel like an, an an empire, you know, clinging to um, relevance. They also cram in such a lot of exposition into that first scene without making it feel, you know, too much like that's what's happening. The world building is so good. Yes. Yeah, I have uh, in in my raw notes from the episode. I have that. I think there are many scenes in this that could be used as a masterclass of the concept of show don't tell there are all these little moments like you know we were talking about the relationship between the temporal powers and the fact that they exist and the relationships between the characters very few of these things are actually stated but you just you get them right away with this episode mm-hmm. yeah and you know romana's exchanges with the high moaning you know pure gold very much they are pure gold um and but even those are very much oh, I have to speak to this this person and uh, yeah it's a real trial they are they are somebody to be appeased the moment the moaning host are to be appeased in many ways rather than rather than taken on directly Roman is sort of very wary about rattling the saber with the moments which gives you some indication of well, you know, actually, the Monans sort of could become top power if they had the opportunity. They they certainly want to. Oh yeah, they, they certainly want to. They be. spend this whole they season trying to, to start fights, really. Yeah. And you also saw that in the apocalypse element as well, which we haven't talked about a great deal, at least for the show. We've talked about it a great deal in other places, but there's there's the similar kind of we are a host, we are a lot of big scary guns mm. and we're about to move in and take over at any point we possibly can that will get us higher in the pecking order as it were and that that gets touched on a lot in the next episode as well if i remember correctly yeah because there's a real piece of brinksmanship really which is um now you think about it so um so griben you know being if you like that that's the the gallifreyans holding pen basically where they sideline people when when they don't want to be um don't want to give them access to the uh, to the vortex. The moment trying to gain a foothold on driving. Really. Well, they're just using it as a as a political football, aren't they? They don't care what particular thing it is that they use. It's just what can we use to get you know one over on Gallifrey. Yeah. Which the whole free time thing, free time, whatever. Free time. Um, 
one thing I did really like about that last scene, about that first scene, was, I mean, A, the music. The music is baller, and I will say this over and over again. I love, especially early Gallifrey, um, but there's some real gems in the later seasons as well. The music is so good, but what does it mean? It means run, and it's just kind of like, oh, right, this is a Doctor Who series. This is a Doctor Who spin-off, and that's the reference that we get is the run. Um, I really appreciated that. Speaking of music... Early Big Finish really does have like a very specific sound to it, I think. Not just in terms of the yeah. sound effects, but the soundscape, the way things are put together. And like every time I go back to it, like I can all, if I listening to a story out of order out of you know, if I just picked a random one off the shelf, I could probably place if it was done in those first 50 to 100 or later just from like the way that the sound is put together. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on that. It's it is clearly you know look they they were you know they were a small company you know I mean according to Nick and and Jason they still are, <laughs> um, which in some ways is is true and in some ways is not you know, um, you know, but they they really were a very small company doing things on on tape recorders and a little bit more by the time sort of Gallifrey rolls around but you know only really you know two or three years you know from 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 the start so what they did with that is excellent because it, it very much is in the in the strains of classic who that you have you don't necessarily have music so much as you have a soundscape in 80s Doctor Who then you do get music and but Certainly in, in the Pertwee era, things were done as soundscapes rather than as uh, themes. Again, down to a lack of, of cash, but necessity is the mother of the invention. Is yeah, they do build up a really cool sound effects library. There's just something very much that's like, this is early Big Finish, and I've never been able to kind of like put my finger on exactly what it is about it. Yeah. A thing I do wish is that... Back then, I would have loved it if they had also included the soundtrack with the releases, like they do with the box sets now, yeah. because I wish I had this yeah, soundtrack. Like a clean it is... of it. Yeah, I just hey, love it. Finish. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if they'd still have the, the files by now, or the, the licensing, because I think that was the reason it took Gallifrey so long to come out on um, download, because, you know, then the contracts didn't have anything about digital downloads. I mean, you'd have been hard pressed to predict the future back in the, the early two thousand. The unit stuff. Yeah, no, uh, no. there's a lot of um, a lot of very prescient stuff in that one. It's a really good series, and I highly recommend it. But that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> oh, I had something. I thought about the. I think it's the Fidens, the Warp Smith. The Warp Smith rights. Or the Warp rights. <laughs> Which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> the Warp Smiths now. Is it's the warp rights when they uh, yeah. When is this another Matthias? Something unfortunate. How many happens. ways to pronounce Matthias? <laughs> yes. I mean, I have a theory on this one, which is not relevant now. I'll bring it up when we get to enemy lines. <laughs> but yeah, just Nepenthe's um performance as a a warp Smith slash rights um like I don't know I I just wonder like was she playing up to stereotypes about the the Fidens that the rest of the temporal powers um, just believe because they find the whole Bond people thing weird and icky? Um, or 
are they literally slavers and the other temporal powers are still just trading and being diplomatic with them? I feel like it's implied that it's the first one and that they just yeah. they just think that, you know... That it's wrong. You know, yeah. That they just think that it's a horrible thing to... Uh, a disgusting way to uh, exist. exist is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, is how it comes across. Yeah. So, on a related note, look, I'm just going to say Andred because we all know who it spoiler is. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> we did say we wouldn't be spoiler free. Let's, Sorry, let's just get it out on the table. Torvald is Andred. So, Andred and his inability to not care about humans, right? And his even in character oogling of. Nepenthe brings up the question of, is Andred a decent person who cares about the slaving, or is he exoticizing humans specifically, and does he just have a general human-woman boner? Like, that's... <laughs> I was going to use the like... word... I was going to use the word kink, but... <laughs> oh, because that's was... so much better. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> fetish. That sounds a bit more... <laughs> I was just going to say I mean, king. It's an it's an interesting question though, right? The the fact that he commits to this whole idiot plan of infiltrate the CIA and don't tell Leela when there's no reason to not tell Leela speaks to even after that many years of being married, like still kind of exoticizing her and thinking of her as yeah. attractive but still inferior, right? Well, it's the whole savage thing, right? Like Mm-hmm. Yes, but I think savage is very much a word he uses as a cover. Yeah. I have that in my notes too. Right. He oh, the first time he calls her that, it's immediately after he said, I don't mind yeah. the squeeze if you don't in the TARDIS that's tart which by the way, Leela's reaction it's so of good. it's the same yeah. size on the inside <laughs> is such a brilliant yes. send up of everybody's first time it's in a TARDIS. So um no. And Leela being so used to being on Gallifrey at that point as well, that like to find something that like isn't dimensionally transcendental is like a, a weird like like what's going on here? Like this isn't how this works. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> but at that point, right, Andred's line is I don't mind a squeeze if you mm. don't. And then at the end, realizing he's not supposed to flirt with her, he says he tacks on a savage as a oh right, I have to stay in character. Which he's not very good at. Yeah, no. At, at the start, he actually, you know, actually refers to Nepenthe as, you know, a, a miserable alien. So that sort of lends credence to the idea that, yeah, they're all miserable aliens, except for, except for humans, because. And that's my thing. And later on, he's against humans in the academy, mm. right? Like he's. Or he's has very complicated opinions on humans in the academy, or, or aliens in general in the academy. So yeah, I think he kind of just is into humans, and doesn't really care. Like you say, but he still thinks they're inferior. Yeah. Yeah. He he's like the kind of person um, in real life who you know is white and marries someone who isn't, and is still really racist. Like the 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 yellow fever yeah. thing, right? yeah. Where white men are very into Asian women and no other women of color because oh they are ecstatic and they will be my waifu and all that. I mean, we get that in the Whatever. next episode, which again we can talk about next episode. But you know the exotic dancer thing, it's right there again. 
speaking of Leela, when when we when we first come across Leela in the uh, in the outlands, yeah, that was what I was going for as well. And and she's talking to the Shurugan, which and the way she describes her marriage that there were like two lions that just sort of really rams it home to me that yeah that lends credence to what we've been saying and that Anjin's just you know he's just not a nice guy you know it's just you know, Leela deserves you know, better yeah. if they were going for the interpretation that Andrid and Leela's marriage was like a good thing and Andrid deserved to get the girl he wouldn't have you know been murdered by the main character um i think it's worth acknowledging here that we are five people who identify as white leela's character is questionable in some ways leela's character is a really hard one to navigate around and often what like walks a precipice of veering into the problematic and we love her and she's amazing and louise is amazing but it's definitely something to acknowledge up front. Um, that yeah, very much the kind of this, the, yeah. the whole savage thing at all is just yeah. There's a lot of like yikes tropes that come with Leela. She's incredible, but it is a thing. Right, she's very much like the wise savage trope for sure. Yeah. Um, and I mean, she has been since day one. Yeah. Yes. It's not. It's it's not a Gallifrey exclusive thing. It, it's very much a from the show, like from the TV show. And I think the writers work really hard to um, deal with that as well as they can. For mm. example, her getting to be a professor later on very much plays against that trope. I mean, she learns Gallifreyan and she learns Gallifreyan technology and, like, you know, this is a lot further down the line. But, like, it is a thing that is acknowledged and addressed and she doesn't, they don't play into the, oh, you're the stupid savage thing. And whenever that comes up, it's very much in a kind of, like, this is not correct, this is the wrong way to approach this. Narvin right, is a really great example of this. He is, straight off the bat, he's my favourite character, I will say this now. I love him, I love his character development. I spent two and a half seasons hating his guts, <laughs> because at the beginning, he is horrendous, right? He is a nightmare, he's consistently so. Like, you know, every single gross trope about Leela, it's Narvin that comes out with it. And again, character development, if you haven't listened to the rest of Gallifrey, he goes some places, um, put it that way. But in my notes right next to Narvin, stop being a racist, no really, I have. Hey, can we have more Leela and Brack scenes please? Thanks, because they're always so good. Um, I can think of what, two off the top of my head? I have made that exact same note. They have such an interesting relationship, mm. and I, like, I can think of two as well, yeah, there's this one, and then... There's the one in um, Disassemble, there is one. Yes, yes. They just, they should have more screen time together. They're such an interesting combination. It's like Brax like, and Benny, please. isn't it? Yeah. Obviously Benny and Leela are two very different characters, but there's a lot there to be explored in the kind of like, to everybody else on Gallifrey, you've got the whole like, Leela is the savage, Leela is like the stupid character in giant quotes. Brax is the only one who takes her seriously, especially at the beginning. Like, he's consistently the one who, like, believes in her abilities and trusts her to just be mm -hmm. able to do things. You know, even Romana is quite often like, oh, Leela won't be able to do this, Leela that, Leela the other. 
I think this is this is a moment to bring up we couldn't get out of the first episode without the phrase half human brax coming out of somebody's mouth. Mine or Void's probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad you said it, so I didn't have to. <laughs> so uh I'm in favor of believing eight when he says he's half human, and I'm in favor of taking that a step further and believing that that it's also the case for Brax. Many people disbelieve one or others of that, and that's valid. This is Doctor Who. Canon is big and nebulous. But anyway, I think Brax's... I think both of... Both Brax's desire to respect Leela and to sort of distance himself from Leela fit really well with the idea that he is half-human and that he has some um, baggage around that that maybe he's had to fight to be taken seriously as a Time Lord and to get people to forget that he is half-human and Void really <laughs> wants to say something, so go for it, Void. I just wanted to, to mark that I want to add here. Um, that exact thing that you're talking about is actually why I'm... I, I have opinions on this because <laughs> I am not a fan of the whole half-human doctor thing. I don't like it. But half-human Brex, though, I find that so interesting for the exact reasons that you were just listing, Jane. Like, this is... He is the character that I want to be half-human. Like, I want to, you know, with his whole... He is so good at being Gallifreyan TM. Or, you know, he's, he's so good at being the Gallifreyan. He is... He is exactly what you need to be to be a Time Lord. And he is good at the politics. He is good at being... Well, yeah, he, he's good at it. And I find it very interesting that the person who most embodies this thing is actually not fully Gallifreyan. Um, but again, I don't like the Doctor being half-human, so I really don't know where I, fa like, where I fall on, on this headcanon, where my... This canon head cannon. I think the thing. word you're looking for are manipulative bastards. <laughs> <laughs> but then also the fact that he's working so hard to be this perfect Time Lord, and yet he can't help caring about the outside universe to the point that he's doing this giant illegal thing by making the collection, and he also can't bring himself to hide it, right? You've got the, um, the thing later on when they're finding out about Brax, the, uh, the Scriptura's famous hollow color, color of the something Diaganza, which Narvin being a patriarch warms my heart. But anyway, right, where Brax has been signing his own name. Brax is a really good liar. He could hide this if he wanted to. He could not name the flipping planet after him, right? He could be somebody else in that persona. Could he, though? Could he really not name it after himself? Well, <laughs> but that's the point, right? Psychologically, he can't, because some part of him needs to acknowledge his ties to the outside universe. So it's this fascinating, fascinating character development and dichotomy, and oh, I hate him so much, he's such a bastard, but also I love him very much. <laughs> so say we all. <laughs> I do want to make one maybe slightly controversial point about Brex at this point. It is not th in any way controversial in the way you think. In my notes um, I have, I've spoken about how this episode basically just needs to pull Brex in from 
from Benny, right? Because that he was an established character in Benny. And, oh yeah, they knew he was a Time Lord, they wanted someone, so why not Rex? Miles didn't, um, to be fair. Miles didn't know he was a Time <laughs> Miles Lord. Miles didn't, um, <laughs> but the riders in general did. Um, <laughs> and, and they wanted to pull him in, and I, I've just, I've written in my notes that while I, I think we get some of the absolute best Brex one-liners in all of Gallifrey <laughs> in this one, I think the, the it isn't, like... It doesn't really let him shine. Like, he's not really... You know, we have the good one-liners. We have, you know, some references to the, the sneaky time travel business. You know, the, the fun banter. We have those elements of him. But I don't think this is the best break story. I mean, it isn't what it says out to be. But I'm just... I think in this story, he's just kind of there to establish that he's there. I can see what you mean. But also... yeah. I can't believe we've got this far into talking about this episode and we haven't talked about the line. <laughs> because, I was waiting. Because that intro scene which pulls Narvin and Brax and Romana and K9 together, that's like introducing four major characters at once, brilliantly so. And every line in that entire scene is solid gold. Every gold. bit of acting is solid gold. And it's just excellent. I was thinking just now about how much the first lines exchanged between each pair of characters mm. immediately in one line set up those relationships. It so really sets so the, the tone. line that Finn is talking about, <laughs> right, is above apoplexy but below incandescence. And it's amazing. <laughs> so good. Right? That exchange right, two lines, how's her mood, right? That's Brax and Narvin. Immediately you know who they are. Romana's first line to Narvin is Shh. <laughs> right <laughs> which will forever delight me <laughs> um there's also the the, the repeated quote don't you ever knock that's later yeah. but it's also very yeah. good and then braxis to ramana is his star blazing queen of the night which is also unbelievable like just you have it you have all three of those characters and their relationships in those three tiny lines and it's Unbelievable, like Void was yeah. saying, a masterclass in showing, not telling. That, that scene, that, that scene also sets up the whole, um, not now canine, be quiet, canine, <laughs> you know, th thing when, you know, when actually, you know, look, look guys, will you just listen to the tin dog? <laughs> you know, um, it's really important that you do, you know, and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that's a, a running gag, and and it it has its it has its origins in that scene, which is yeah, whether whether it's Romana telling him to turn the Mozart off because it's such a terrible version, um, and, and and Brax immediately coming out with, well, if you had the nineteen sixty two, because of course he knows, or yeah. Or, or whether collection racks has told him. Yeah, is, no. Mozart, uh, madam? Yeah. It's just like, ugh, <laughs> I hate him so much. <laughs> Can I bring up one small piece of minutiae in that scene? Always. And a couple pieces of minutiae? I am always collecting tiny, tiny pieces of color and canon for potential inclusion in future writing. Um, in this episode, we established that 
Not all Gallifrey and hybrid animals have pig in them. There are also <laughs> horse cats and bat snakes, which we never hear about again. <laughs> Honestly, it feels like something out of Avatar and I love it. Right? In that scene, Brax says something like Folia's bones as like an expletive. And I'm trying to find out who Folia is and yeah, like what any of that has to do with anything. He sort of mutters it yeah, under the his breath. Familiar, and I don't know if it's just because there's Flavia, yeah. right? I, it made me think of Flavia. Yeah. yeah. But I tried any spelling I could think of, googling it in, uh, or not googling it, searching it in TARDIS wiki, and I didn't come up with anybody. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I found it. Arc of Infinity. Interesting. Thalia was a Time Lord and okay. High Chancellor under President Barusa. I don't remember this at all. I'm gonna have to rewatch this episode. Okay. Now. Like all Time Lords, Thalia was blah 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 blah. So he's one time, one Chancellor swearing by the bones of another Chancellor. Yeah. Well, he's not Chancellor yet. Well, that's true, but he knows he's gonna be, because he's Brax. <laughs> I'm gonna have to rewatch this episode now. I knew it reminds- I knew I remembered it. Um, like, I knew I recognised well, the name. Well, Ar- Ark of Infinity Barus is awful, though. I am real thing about, uh, about Barus is, like, the, the guy who played me in, um, Deadly Assassin was just so good. Yeah, five doctors. It's okay, you know. Yeah, but Arkham Infinity is just awful. You know, when it comes to portrayal of established characters, it's just not good. Okay, so that's why I was getting it wrong. I was searching for Folia with an F and it's TH. There we go. That's how I've okay. always heard it as well. Which is a little bit cockney. I do love the way he uses it as a swear, though. Honestly, like, Finn, you've made this point once or twice. Um, and I just, I like the idea, like, the, the thing about how, actually, when you put Brex on the spot, he's not that great a liar. No, he's really like, not. He's good at when he's got, like, when it's clearly something he is rehearsed and that he's ready to say. But when you put him on the spot, he, like, he has a lying voice and he stutters and he, you're just like... Irving, <laughs> lying, <laughs> sir. That's it. He's so such a meticulous planner, right? And that pays off for him most of the time. But when things don't go to plan, yeah. Might I again bring this up? Great. One of my favorite sort of Brax-related theories. I know we've already talked about um, the half-human Brax, um, and also he's an alien. Things apply differently, but looking at it from a human viewpoint and um like people who are writing this are like real human people and pull this from like you know tropes that they see in other people and like behaviors that they see in other people autistic brax yes i am so on board with this on so many levels can plan for the whole world but can't deal with the slightest little bit of like you know disruption to said plans and all like you know there's way more than just the kind of like you know the boring stereotypes and everything like that but it looking at it through that lens i do pick up on stuff sometimes and i just kind of like hmm yeah same heart buddy (laughs) yeah hyper fixations for sure well it's just like you know he spins and stuff like that and um the the humming that he does sometimes literally on, Um, on my on my thing right now that i have highlighted as we are talking is brax stress humming yeah, mm. um, yeah. I I made a note of that as well. Yeah, 
but I'm not qualified to make this decision. <laughs> See, that to me is a perfect example of when Brex is put on the spot. Yep. Because you can hear in his voice, he's just like, wait, no. No one told me about this. Yep. Excuse you, future me. Yep. <laughs> Could you have maybe warned me about this development? Yep. And the, the, the I forbid it, Madam President, and then, like, two minutes later, you are my president, so if you insist. <laughs> to overrule me twice in one day would be very bold. Yeah. A2 Braxia Tell. Oh, there's just so, so much of my notes is just quotes. Like, the whole thing is, like, this is not useful, um, but, like, it's just quotes, like, Lapdog of Rathalon, or he's so charmingly naive, um... I am a commander in the CIA, please don't kill me. <laughs> Just like, mm, mm, yeah. One thing, one, one that I do really like is the, uh, the Leela's, um, when the pen says, like, Leela, why do you hate the Time Lords? Um, and, like, that whole conversation is really, really good. But the, because they despise the unalike, they speak of promises and flattery, but they promise only to deceive. They use too many words, but even the gentlest sounding may have a double meaning. They think other people are crude animals to be penned up in their place. They are a bad tribe. It's like, and then that, and then the, a race that cannot progress is a dead one. Going back to the, like, you know, collapsing empire thing, or at least stagnant empire, is really good. So yeah, everybody gets to pick one more topic. I feel like that because we were talking priorities, right? And we're already running way long, so everybody gets one more priority. Okay, so the the thing that I did want to talk about is is the way the end of the episode really sets up a multitude of possibilities. So <clears throat> you've been brought all the way from from the start. The fact that there's clearly some sort of plot and conspiracy going on all the way to the point at the end of whatever it is an, an hour and ten of, of content and by that point you know it could be one of a multitude of, of people who's doing this we we clearly know Brax is somewhat shady it could be just a terrorist free time free time organization um it could be the monans it could be uh the inquisitor you've got this multitude of different ways in which this this thing could go um you know, whose side is narvin on you know so that's just brilliant brilliant you know that's what you want a pilot to do you know you want it to get to the point at which you're going to say you know what, I want to, that's great world building, which is what, you know, pilots are all about. I want more, you know, so. To be fair, the first five minutes did that for me, but yes, I see your point. <laughs> so yeah, so that's my sort of big point, and that's why, um, uh, that and the janky theme tune is, is why I, want, <laughs> I personally was motivated to keep going, um, you know. Quite apart from the fact, you know, it's Romana and Leela. So, so yeah, so that's my big thing. The only other thing that I wanted to really point out are Brax's imitation of the High Monan is, is excellent. Audio gold. 
Um, and Romana's A2 Braxia Tell <laughs> is, uh, is more audio gold. And, and the last one is this sets up the idea of uh, K9, Tin Dog of Many Faces <laughs> <laughs> idea. So the idea that you know, what we would term an AI these days could actually be believed in the Doctor Who universe to be in this case, a criminal mastermind from the fifth galaxy. <laughs> and in the next episode, effectively, the pimp for these exotic dancers, you know, it's, you know, it, it's amazingly well done, you know, in, in, in later episodes where he ascends to positions of, you know, what are really positions of very high rank in Time Lord society, you know, so he's a tin dog, but it's normalised that, that artificial life you know, can do that and be believed yeah canine getting to be his own person um yeah both of them is very good it's something that i really enjoy in the audio series which they didn't really get to do as much on the tv because no. obviously like having the robot the on set was a nightmare in his memoirs um which are worth a listen if nothing else to get a bit of his perspective although you know he's clearly it's clearly a very skewed perspective jnt's memoirs basically says exactly that that actually everyone says that jnt hated canine he said he actually says in his memoirs i did not hate the tin dog i actually quite like the tin dog but just the prop was a nightmare and was always going wrong always having to be carried around and just made shooting horrible so you know that's why he, he was he was written out but um canine getting to be his own person or multiple people and believably so uh, is is a great thing and they set that up at the end of this very first episode there's the interaction where Leela is so adorably excited about having the title of bodyguard, um, and her canine calls Romana mistress, and yeah, Romana says, how so dare good. you? Yes. <laughs> Call me Madam President. Actually, so, yes, like, about the uh, that line, or rather the continuation of it, adding to the point Chris was making about all these things that are being set up, so the end of that line goes, Judicial inquiry or not, I'm planning to keep this job for a very long time. The foreshadowing of that line? Yeah. Like, when you know what Romana does to keep being president? Mm-hmm. I just, <clears throat> when I was, li- I made a note of it while listening that, like, yes, Romana, we know. <laughs> we know you're planning to stay president. <gasps> It, you get to have the delight of having K9, and you, all you need is the budget to pay John Leeson. One of the things I wanted to touch on was kind of like how high stakes the show is from like right from the get-go. A lot of things on TV and on audio and whatever. Stuff struggles a lot from the Dragon Ball Z effect. Everything always has to be bigger and badder and louder in the next episode, the next season finale. Like There always has to be like a ramping up of what's happening. I hear that's really bad with stuff like Supernatural. I was about yeah, to like say Supernatural is terrible really about from it. that. I mean, even Moffat's run of Who um, struggles with it. Because, um, like, the season finale always has to be bigger and louder than the last one. You know, like, the last end of the universe wasn't enough. 
now we've got to top it rather than um, yeah he's he started with a with you know the end of the universe and the big bang and it's really hard to keep going up from there yeah like you you don't need to go up from there and what this show is really good at doing is kind of maintaining that level of like tension and like it's almost like you get the 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 shepherd madness thing of like it feels like it's always going up like the tension's always rising and things are always getting worse and like more difficult to deal with but actually it's not ramping up any worse like the first season of course like escalates but like from the very first episode you've got oh we're going to like blow up this whole planet full of people that threat comes from like a bunch of different vectors mm-hmm. um but it never it never feels like trying to outdo itself it's just like a very well-crafted story and it recognizes that the only thing you can do when you've reached that height of tension is go personal mm. um go intimate go small in a powerful way season four is is hit or miss right there's some things it does really well and one of the things it does do really well is recognize that it has to go personal we've had the giant crisis at the end of season three right it's got as bad as it could get and so you get very very character focused in season four and it's all about the very small intimate personal quest of we are four people looking for a home And you get that feeling yeah. from the very first theme. Yes. <laughs> Which is wonderful. We couldn't make it through one whole episode without talking about Frax's unicorn daydreams. <laughs> what do you mean an outtake? That's how I'm going to do it. <laughs> Speaking of that kind of like tone and things like that, um, one thing I did pick up on this episode is the quiet conversations in stressful moments is very much a thing that Gallifrey does very well. It's the end of the world, someone's about to be shot, Romana's walking herself off to possibly be super dead in the next 20 minutes kind of thing. And they still have time to, for those like, like, like that zoom in on that little, just like 30 second conversation. It makes it feel really personal and like, you know, that's why you get attached to Narvin so quickly. Like, you're kind of like, this absolute ass. I hate him, <laughs> I hate him. Why is he like this? And like that, those little snatches are what ends up making the character development work so well. In that, like, you don't notice the character development until it slaps you full in the face, and you go, "Oh my god, I care about this guy. Something bad has happened, or something bad is going to happen, or like this little interaction." And you kind of like, "I would kill for this man." I find the show does that really well. Just the whole scene where, yeah, as far as he's concerned, you know, Romana can't handle this situation, so he's just like deploying the battle tances. Don't care what she's saying. That is just, you know, the the turnaround from from that. Even season three. You know, yeah, even season three. But you know, but then, hey, Valia, is she going to have a word with with spoilers? Spoilers. (laughs) Hey, look, we've you know, we've let we've let the cat out of the bag with that entrance bit. Yeah. Yeah. We are very good at talking about only one episode of Gallifrey. I'm doing my best to keep us on track. We are on like, the yeah, topic of that like one episode. It's my podcast, and I'm telling <laughs> we you are, what we to are do. on the topic of this one episode. Uh, there yeah, are just but, later things yeah. that are relevant to this, and things that are thing as we said. You know, there is so much that is set up, and yeah. so much that is built, and so much that is foreshadowed in terms of in terms of character here. You know, and you know, and as. As we've sort of said, you know, the the shot revelation that we've had, you know, just talking around it, investigating it, you know, that um, 
life during wartime occurs before the first season you know it's been published before this first season of Gallifrey is just that's a shocker you know and just, and just shows you you know just just how much these guys were you know even then you know when you think about how long-term big finish do things these days you know even then they were thinking on that scale you know what it's going to take us three years or so to play all this out that's pretty good storytelling um mm. you know you get a lot a lot of tv series that don't plot that far in advance or you know or you get a lot of tv series that run out of steam because they don't plot that far in advance you might call it four-dimensional thinking <laughs> <laughs> also void has something to say i have a point um so when we were talking about things that we absolutely want to get into, my thing was I have something I want to say about Narvin. So as I was saying earlier, warning you, half of my notes on points I absolutely wanted to get into were about Narvin. Um, so I'm going to try to say this very briefly. The scene you were talking about, Chris, um, with, with, you know, when when Narvin challenges Romana. Um, mm. I was thinking about that scene, um, and I was thinking about Narvin in general, because... All of the other main characters in Gallifrey were, all, were already established. Um, Narvin is the only new main character. He, this was his his introduction to all of the universe. So Narvin, at this point, we we obviously know this happens after Neverland. He's just taken over as coordinator after Vencel. We don't know exactly how long it's been, but from how Romana and Ida talk about the Doctor being gone, I think we can assume it's not been too long it is a fairly recent change in circumstance for him and i think that he is kind of still settling into that role he's already got this rapport with brex you know with the uh, the line based on that i think he must um he must also see romana a lot we also know that he's been he's worked with brax before or at least yeah has worked against brax mm-hmm. before as comes up later on i think romana is kind of keeping an eye on him because of vencel's betrayal so he's under a lot of, of scrutiny from her. The reason I think this is because in the beginning of the episode, we see a lot of him like trying to appease her. Like there's a whole asking about her mood. Um, in his report, he wrote specifically the, the part about it being an alleged timonic fusion device, very obviously knowing that she would read it. And the thing where he's like, the CIA are right behind your griping initiative, madam. You know, like, he is trying to, to appease her. And I think that's sort of managing the political side of things, which he's not really used to. But based on later interactions, I do kind of get the feeling that he's sort of... He's seeing a bit of on, on Torvald and as his second in command. Um, more so than we ever really see him leaning on someone else. Um, so. so I think, like, he's... He's, there are parts of it that he is still making up as he goes. Um, like he is, he is very competent. We know this, um, but I think there is something that he's still struggling with here. Um, until that moment uh, when they are having this discussion about what to do about Gryben, because I think that is a pivotal moment for his character, um, because that is the first time. Like we know that he doesn't necessarily agree with Romana, but that is the first time we see him stand up to her and I believe it is the first time he ever does it um, when when they're talking about what to do and you know he tells her I, I forbid what I forbid it your plan that you're trying to do um, and 
I think that moment of standing up to her is kind of what sets him on the path to that that character development that, that we all know and love. Um, because that's kind of the moment that he he stops being just, you know, he's not just, you know, oh, that new coordinator. He becomes a character, right? Like, he stands out. Now he is Narvin. He is someone in, in Romana's eyes, and therefore he's someone in our eyes, since Romana is, well, kind of the focus character. Um, Romana's the one that, when you first start listening to the series, you're like, okay, I'm on Romana's side because yes, she's Romana. Yes, exactly. Um, and then when you re-listen to it, you're like, shit, Narvin was a racist, but Christ, he's right about a lot of his stuff. Yes. Well, and that's, I think... That's, I think, why he's able to stand up to her then, mm. is he knows the law is on his side, right? He says, the procedures are clear, it's laid down, this is what we're supposed to do, and you are breaking the law right now. <laughs> Not this to also... get too political, but, you know, some of us could wish that some uh, <laughs> officials in our own government might do the same thing. Gosh, I wouldn't know what that feels like. <laughs> no, of course you wouldn't. I mean, there's just the the kind of, like, the little moments, like, Narvin is, like, unendingly loyal to the office of president, right? Like, what the president sort of says is what gets done most of the time, you know, with a little bit of... But, like, he is loyal to Gallifrey and to the office until and he to starts the law. to kind of... Yeah, until he sort of, like, realises that that's not quite... Things are not that simple. And, like, part of his loyalty shifting is why, you know, so much of, like, the character development and the loyalty shift, but also, like, he never loses that kind of, like, this is the correct thing to do. Um, you know, she can't do that, it's illegal stuff. I wouldn't hesitate to destroy you, but in the right way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so, you know, when Arcadian comes in, A, there's, like, Arcadian's list of crimes. The way he reels that off is exact, and I love Sean for this, it's, it's incredible. It is exactly the same way that he reels off Romana's quote-unquote flaws later on. Like, the tone is exactly the same. It's totally the same thing, the way he does it, and it's brilliant. But also, he immediately jumps in and becomes defensive of the presidency. The president isn't interested in cooking shunt spaceships. And, like, A, my immediate reaction to that was stamped. But also... It is the jumping in and kind of, like, it's defending the office. It's like, no, this isn't how it happens. Like, you are not making a deal with this guy. One of the things that made it into my notes was, I will forever be sad that we were denied the scene of Narvin and Arcadian meeting. I mm. think in later seasons, when we know Narvin better, they would have given us that gem. Yeah. Um, but there just wasn't room for it. <laughs> but, okay, can I bring up my Arcadian theory since we're talking about him? Can I say one yes, thing? Just it, um, the thing about Narvin believing in the presidency and everything. I think, you know, the point I was trying to make is all of it um, leading up to this one moment where for the first time, well, it's the first time we see him question it, but obviously with with stories, the first time we see things is generally also the first time it happens because why wouldn't they show us the first time? Um, it would be very uninteresting if we found out, oh, no, he's been doing that for weeks, you know? But, you know, like, that that is the moment that, that you know, Narvin begins on this path of questioning everything. Because, well, if the precedent isn't perfect because the presidency is the most important, then what else is a lie? It is very good. 
I'm just looking at the fact that we've been talking for two hours about this, and I can still quite easily keep talking about this for another two hours, and I know that oh, I yeah. could about this one episode. <laughs> but yeah, Jane, anyway, I Jane, am I am very interested in hearing about your Arcadian theory. I am okay. very excited about this. I know a little bit. This is very hyped. written uh-huh. in my notes, right? I have the words "a big theory" in all caps, followed by eight postulates providing proof for this theory. Theory. <laughs> so here it is. Mephistopheles Arcadian is a future regeneration or disguise of Irving Braxiatel. <laughs> Here are my eight pieces of proof. Number one, the way he plays with language, and in particular the name Mephistopheles Arcadian, which no parent would ever give their child. Number two, very good voice. Number three, knows things. Far too much, especially the the word imperiatrix, which is a big-ass deal. And it's never explained how Arcadian knows about the future. The only other character who we know who knows the future is Irving Braxiatel. Number four, flirts outrageously with Romana. <laughs> Number five, the conversation he has in the bar. I was in love once, she drove me to drink. There you go. Number six, totally unscrupulous asshole, but you kind of love him, but hate him, but love him. That's the most compelling one. Right. Number seven, knows about fashion, which we know from the line uh, in 1.4, don't you look chic in your couture. And finally, number eight, come on though, the bastard has a sense of style. (laughs) Jane, these are... My eight pieces of proof that Mephistopheles Arcadian is Irving Braxiatel. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank that, you so is... much for bringing this into my life. I had not considered <laughs> that. Good. That is a really good point about it never being explained about the Imperatrix thing. I think I have wondered that before in real essence, but yeah. I never g- g- made the jump from yeah. that to yeah. who is he really. And why does he never come back? Also, later, later Braxiatel is a refugee really? from a lot of different places and could easily end up on Gryphon. <laughs> and what would he do other than be a knowledge broker? Yeah. I specifically have notes that are just like, I have questions about Arcadian. I have no answers. Um, you've just, you've given me a theory that would provide them. My, my running one has always been that, um, future Brex employed Arcadian mm. um, but I'm kind of rapidly falling in love with your theory Jane <laughs> it, does, it does bring a Thank whole you. new dimension to the is it the 1.4 scene where he's like trying to dine with Romana yes oh and God. has listed her as being um, <laughs> Mrs. Arcadian oh right and the ones can you imagine oh the one scene? What have you done? It's entirely possible. It, it, it's entirely possible. Also, he would do the that one scene in the whole show that Romana is described as wearing anything yeah. other than Time Lord robes, right? <laughs> and specifically, nice clothes is the one episode of the right in that chunk of episodes that Brax isn't in. Are you kidding me? No, no way his future selves would let him miss that. <laughs> He is there on that train, flirting and complimenting. Oh, God. This is incredible. No. 
You have and blessed us, Jane. We're now going to discuss this every time. <laughs> this should be like the the teaser for the episode. <laughs> Who is Arcadian, really? <laughs> also, while you were saying that theory, Romana Cat started meowing, so mm. I think it's confirmed. <laughs> Excellent. I will make sure to turn this turn the uh, microphone. Hello, Romana. Did you yeah. know I was talking about you? Are you gonna walk all over the laptop? Do you have any? <laughs> like, yes, I am going to break your internet connection again. <laughs> Do you have anything to say? <laughs> I'm going to turn your Wi-Fi off. Nope. Just gonna stare. <laughs> One thing in my notes about someone who did have something to say. Um, Helen Goldwyn, like, if we want to just touch on, like, the acting in this series and how good it is, um, I've spent, like, the first half of the episode going, I know that voice, I know it, I know it, I know it, and I couldn't, I couldn't put a name to it, um, so I had to look it up, and, like, ugh, I love her, she's so good, she does so much good stuff with Big Finish. Um, um, just for the record, um, remind us who she plays. Oh, Nepenthe. Yes. Just for yes. for listeners. Yeah, yeah, um, and also, which I have never caught before. I think it's bothered me before, but I've never caught it. Um, when they go into the the pub or the bar or whatever it is, the guy who asks the um like for the passcode, basically, the 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 time is out of joint one. Who's Gary? Oh, and I was like. I had to pause it and rewind it. I was like, hang on a minute. Mm, mm, who is this? Sir. <laughs> Gary, of course, being Gary Russell. Gary Russell, yeah. Did you get a chance to re-listen to the beginning? Because I'm not great at voices, but I think one of the aliens is Linda Bellingham. Yes, I am pretty sure it is as well. Um, being Darkle. Yes. Yes. Who shows up at the end of this episode? Should we talk right. about Darkle a little bit? I'm. Should we do that for this episode, we though? Because I think we at this point, do. really, all she's done is show up and be like, "We're having an inquiry. You've got two weeks." Yeah, let's save that for the inquiry, which, as we all two know, weeks. is the yeah, second episode of Gallifrey, yeah. not the third. Because <laughs> 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 it's got a better name. I just really yeah. appreciate that the second episode is called Square One. Right. It's good on a number of levels. Was there anything you wanted to bring up, Scar? See, it sounds weird to say I liked this, but the whole uh, implications of that the Monans torture their own people for, like, making a mistake. Mm. Um, I just like how that it's not like uh, Gallifrey is, the, is just the big bad superpower and... Um, the other temporal powers are like the victims. They're also like corrupt empires in their own right, and it's all just a bunch mm. of powers uh, that are all kind of shitty. But Gallifrey is the the top one at the moment, and so it's the the shittiest. But um, yeah, just yeah. Yeah, I mean the the the, the Warpsmiths, you know, the Warpsmith right sort of later, Warpsmith rights. How they came, A to B and B 
to have time travel is very very shady so you know so yeah absolutely you know there's you you don't want to give a monopoly over time to any of them but it's all what they want Um, and and yeah what i said earlier about the the warp smiths and their relationships to their bonds people and and how it's probably mutually beneficial in some way that that would be um interesting i think if we had like a recurring more more reoccurring um alien characters from the the new races that you know were created for gallifrey the monans and the the nakistani because we have them in the student episode but Hmm. not really since and they were only you know there for a subplot yeah but that yeah like I, I I can I I can do without more Nekistani, in all honesty. Banana. Just because they make my so... flesh crawl, I'm sorry they do. Yeah, they're just horrible. They're always you know just horrible fleshy, wet, slug-like rather. Is what they're described like. Things. <laughs> or maybe I believe they're described as slug-like no, in sorry? Uh, Square One. No, yeah, I could I be wrong because kind of like I haven't listened to that one yet. Yeah. But... yeah. Slobbery. Yeah, either. The Warpsmiths yeah, must slobbery. look pretty humanoid if Nepenthe was able to pass as well. Of the hut. Yeah, I mean, they, they take human thoughts. Yeah, so they, they just so... look like humans with weird voices. For some reason, I've always pictured them with blue eyes, like bright, shiny yeah, blue eyes. Like glowy. They're blue? described as being blue. No, that's the uh, Monans, Monans are pasty and blue. They're all, yeah, that's what that's yeah, what uh, Valio's thing is. Like, he's like, they're all blue and well, blue, and you're like, yes. <laughs> this is a basis um, of discrimination. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so before we get off the topic. Before we get entirely off the topic, right, Scar, you started with, like, the Yevnani and the dis- or not the Yevnani, the Monans and the discussion of flaying, right? I'm a little worried about Alan Barnes, because I clued in for the first time on how much talk there is about torture in this episode, <laughs> right? So, uh, one trusts one will be flaying <laughs> one's underlings, and then Romana says she's going to do some flaying. Certainly very um, But then, let's see, Romana's meant to lash Norman and Brax. Nepenthe says Romana's giving her a tongue lashing. Farouk <laughs> says he's been tortured and suggests boiling Romana in oil. Like, they're really into torture in this app, and I'm, I don't know if I'm there for it. <laughs> are, are you kink-shaming? <laughs> I I don't think boiling people in oil is a legitimate thing for <laughs> But no, but the others are, I assume. No, the others I'm all in favor of. <laughs> um also one one other very small thing. I'm collecting Romana insults. So in this in this one I forgot that Nepenthe calls her a harpy. Next episode she gets called a bitch. And, of course, there's the classic point of her being called a shrew in 4.4. All the sexist insults, especially. So I'm trying to keep a running list as we re-listen of all the bad names that Ramona gets called. Updates to come. Are you counting Narvin's list of insults? 
Those aren't sexist, and so they don't count. Right, we have the, um, <laughs> this episode is very heavy on mentions of torture. I wonder if that's a bit like, you know how like the second episode of Torchwood is just all about, oh yeah, just there. like all about sex and orgasms because like they want to make it really clear that they're not a kid's show and they have to be all edgy and... Romana, why are you running across my keyboard? Have you broken the internet? No. Good. No, you're still here. <laughs> there's also, okay, there's yeah. Leela. What does Leela talk about doing to somebody? She, somebody... She is going to dangle um, someone's uh, Torvald's entrails before his dying eyes? Is that yeah. what you're talking about? There you go. And while we're talking about acting, I have a note there about how... Um, Andred may be useless, but I'm looking up the actor's name. Andy Coleman is really, really good at him, at being him, right? Mm. Because his reaction to that, the, that's really horrible. Yeah. It's just perfectly delivered and adorable, yeah. and I love it very much. Right, like, I think in this episode, like, not knowing that he's Andred, like, even though Torvald is horrendous, he has all these moments where, where he's quite charming, mm. um... Well, it's obviously the Endred coming through. You can't salute uh, with your hands tied, Commander. Stupid boy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's right there. And the Commander thing. Oh, I just, I thought I had. I've written down that quote that yeah. was just said about, I will kill you, Time Lord. I will dangle your entrails in front of your dying eyes. And that whole scene is obviously reads very differently in hindsight. Uh, and just the whole thing where, you know, where she's literally up in his face. About to kill him, and he's so so close yeah. to sort of going, Leela, it's me. He he does sort of shout her name and it gets he, cut off. He's a he's about to say it. Yeah. And... He says, "Please, you can't do this. You don't understand, Leela." And he gets yeah. interrupted there. And just want to point something out. There is one further mention of torture in the episode. Actually, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is, in fact, uh, it isn't quite the same, but. It is mentioned that Romana has recently banned the use of the mind probe, which of course also is a form no, of torture. So we've got, <laughs> we've got a running count of mentions of torture and sexist insults directed at Romana so far. I'm just excited for the take my hand running count. <laughs> which we all know is Gallifrey and for I love you, so you know. Oh yes. We also have the the swear jar. <laughs> anytime, Sorry. and I will take this bullet for both of us. Anytime, I mention Trey or Scar mentions Sardia, we've agreed to like give a dollar to charity <laughs> or a pound. So, there you go. I will do that for the <laughs> for this episode because I said her name. <laughs> We may have fixations. So I'm allowed okay. to bring up Trey and you're allowed to bring up Satya. Apparently, but you just said her <laughs> name too, so there you go. I mean, now I'm not sure if men- well. the mention- is it the mention of the name, or is it bringing the character up? Because right now you're just introducing the concept of the square jar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's bringing it up, isn't it? Um I mean, I tried to make that argument to my middle school teacher when I got in trouble for talking about the Monty Python sketch Hell's Grannies, saying I was not swearing by saying the word hell. But, you know, he did not buy that argument. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. 
He's a pretty good teacher all around. So, um, I think we've all brought up something, and surely from all of our recordings, there is an episode in there somewhere. Well, okay, we do have to do the ending bit of talking about the next episode. So, all, all, all I remember about the next episode is K-9 and Mila being sent to a hastily arranged peace summit to try and think further into the question of the time monic fusion device. Uh, Mila having to pose as a exotic dancer uncovering a series of murders and then at the end um, manages to unmask the murderer. So it's a Scooby-Doo episode. And then there is a twist at the end. which So it's a Scooby-Doo episode, yeah. Um, obviously, I would have gone away with it as well if it wasn't for uh, a sexy savage and her tin dog. I remember when I eventually... First, listen to this episode. Um, Come on, a cat, please, one second. Um, That near the end, there's like a what? What I what I'm sure is a a reference to the whole Naimon. He said there was only one (laughs) thing, and when I when I realised that, that was just a. Yes, a really good, a really good callback. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely will be the case as well because you know the big finish guys. <laughs> Sorry. What? No. What does that say about us? <laughs> so my favorite thing about one point two is. Uh, is the the queerness of the fact that having sent Leela off to to dance in public, Romana is unable to stay away, even though there's this massive peace conference going on that really she should be at, <laughs> but it's just too tempting and she has to go herself. <laughs> All right, uh, there we go. Finn and Boyd, we haven't heard your 1.2 thoughts? Um, so for me, we are still in that area of canon where I can, I can walk you through every sort of plot point in this story. Um, as I'm listening to it, I can, like, the script comes to me as I am listening. I'm sitting there quoting along with the characters, so I'm not gonna go over everything I remember. I am still gonna entertain you with, um, this story, so... Finn will tease me endlessly about the fact that my first big Finnish story was um, Sagreus, which I listened to about 20 minutes of it before I realised I had it on shuffle. Um, every callback made, I assumed, oh right, this is just for an episode I haven't listened to yet. Um, so you can imagine listening to this episode where we have the same scene playing several times. I got immensely confused, because I was thinking, did I do the shuffle thing again? <laughs> so, 
Oh, I had that moment uh, the first time I listened to it. Um, we all like so the the first few episodes. I um I would listen to an episode th- two or three times before moving on to the next um, because there were so many things that I wanted to re-listen to that I this is the only time I've ever had that urge to re-listen to we rewatch reread something immediately after finishing it. Just as soon as I'd finished an episode, I'd listen to it again. And then the day after, I'd listen to it again. Um, which does probably explain why I can quote them so well. Um, I mean, I have listened <laughs> to them many times later also, but yeah. I mean, I've listened to them a lot, but it wasn't one episode a bunch of times and then the next episode a bunch of times. But yes, I will. I didn't know that you'd done that one, that you'd thought that was the square one just just going back to weapon of choice for just a second i so i i listened to gallifrey before or certainly this much of gallifrey you know so early gallifrey before i listened to neverland and sagreus so when romana sort of says you know well you know we can't ask the doctor anymore because he's gone i'm like what do you mean? <laughs> you know, I, I I had no idea, and I had, and you know, and I I had to go and uh, I had to go and hunt that down, and um, you, you know, could have and, just um, asked. You go, aha. Well, you know, yeah, you know. So I, maybe mm. I did, maybe I did. I can't remember. You know, but yeah, that was that. Ah, that's the that, that's the. I've not got to that eight audio yet, you know, because I was still working my way through those as well. For me, the thing with Square One, um, it's I love the premise. I love like I love the kind of the gotcha point at the end. Um, like I love the I love the whole episode. I struggle a little bit with the whole leader of the exotic dancer thing because again, it's the it's the tropes, isn't it? Um, and it's like the one time that you really see a character get sexualized in Gallifrey, and like I like the way that. Leela just kind of like turns it on its head um but it just didn't sit right with me and I think listening through it again I will have that different perspective on it and stuff like that because at the time I was just like ugh they're really doing this with Narvin like mm, gross um but like knowing the characters better now and seeing it differently and stuff it will sort of hit a little differently but yeah it's a really cool episode really cool conceit um I just really struggle with the you know, they could have sent Leela there under any other premise, and I would feel a lot better about it. Um, Again, I think it's telling that it's the only episode where anybody gets called a bitch, right? Like, hmm. there is sort of yeah. a sexism built into the perspective of that episode that is not in most of the others. And I think yeah. the, um, not getting too much into it, but... Um, the reveal of who is doing the thing the way she acts at that point and like her reasoning is also a little bit um yeah iffy to me like yeah it falls a little bit too into hysterical woman territory for me yeah square one is probably my least favorite of the first two seasons um (laughs) and i mean a lot of that is to do with the quality of the rest of the first three seasons um because they are so good but I'm looking forward to it. I will enjoy it, but I will have a lot to say, I think, um, as if I haven't already had a lot to say today. But it's been good stuff. 
yeah, it's a low point for me in a series that I really love, which doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just not as good as the rest. But also, Nervin gets really, really annoyed by everything in in Square One, and I love it because he's just like, "Why am I? Here? Why have you sent me? This is not what I do. I do the the quiet." underhanded stuff why have you sent me to be a diplomat and he's right Please stop. he is being dicked around but we'll save that for next week mana is the president and narvin's loud in his descent and leela has wise things to say and they all live on gallifrey we're massive nerds who love this show we have lots of opinions though so come on in and come to stay and let's talk about gallifrey of Resonant. Thank you for listening.